You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. Today, we have a really amazing guest. Her name is Isabella Wench. She's one of the really leading experts in natural health, and particularly with a focus on the thyroid and adrenal function. Um, she's a compassionate, innovative, solution-focused, integrative pharmacist dedicated finding the root causes of chronic health conditions. Her passion stems from her own diagnosis with Hashimoto's in 2009 and following a decade of debilitating symptoms. She's really worked hard on herself. I think we know as a practitioner, you find that, you know, it's really good to be a practitioner, not be like amazingly healthy, because if you have a few conditions, you learn a really lot about them. And I think that makes you a much better practitioner around the, or, or across the board. She's written a bunch of books, I think three books. Uh, we're gonna talk about a couple of them today. The first one we're gonna talk about is uh, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. I love the root cause, that's so Ayurvedic. You know, we, we do hear Isabella's write about and talk about ancient modern wisdom, ancient Ayurvedic wisdom with modern science. So we always put the science together with the ancient wisdom. And, and uh, so I'm gonna kind of kind of try to weave that web with you today. And our most recent book, The uh, Adrenal Transformation Protocol, we're gonna talk about that too as well. Um, Isabella, I know you're super busy. I, I follow you on social, you do amazing work. Um, so glad to have you here, um, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to connect with you. Um, I've been following your work for quite some time as well, and I love the um, the healing that you put out in the world. So, pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So um, years and years ago, I wrote an article about the thyroid and its lymphatic connections. And because uh, in Ayurveda, the the lymphatic system is called rasa. And the study of the study of rasa is called rasayana. And the study of Rasayana is the study of longevity, right? So the whole idea in Ayurveda was that your lymphatic system is linked to longevity. And it's the first system you would evaluate and treat. So when I read your book, I was so neat to, so, so neat to hear that Hakura Hashimoto back in 1912, he didn't call it Hashimoto's because it wasn't named after him yet, right? He called it what? Lymphosoma uh, or stroma lymphatosa, right? So, and there were so many other names that you had in your book that they were originally called this condition a lymphatic concern. So I kind of want to dive there because that's where my people are tuned in. I've read many articles on the lymph and the lymph digestion relationship. So if we could kind of start there and work our way into the thyroid and into the adrenals and then go that route. So I'd love to hear that story, that connection to the thyroid and the lymph, which most people don't know about. I don't think I have a story for you there. I'm sorry. I don't I don't have a lot of experience in Ayurvedic medicine. Well, it's not so much that. It's just that when you wrote about the lymphatic system, did you tie that to did, did you was there any more information like why did they call it a lymphatic condition? Oh, there was some lymph infiltration into the thyroid gland. I think maybe that was it. Right, right. Well, and also the lymphatic system drains the thyroid gland as well, right? Correct. Right, right. So, so you also mentioned in your in your book that a big part of this is leaky gut syndrome and how we have a lot of issues. And we know that that when foods are not properly digested, there was one study that showed that the proteins and the fats like gluten 
and environmental pollutants, fats, toxic fats, if they're not properly broken down in your stomach, liver, gallbladder, bioflow, pancreatic enzymes, that they're going to go undigested into the intestinal tract and they will be too large of a molecule to actually be absorbed into the bloodstream and they'll get uptaken into the lymphatic ducts and they'll create like a leaky gut syndrome. And then those toxins and those proteins and fats can get into the lymph like gluten gets into the lymph and, and uh, causes a lot of these gluten-related symptoms and definitely Hashimoto. So maybe you could track that for me and talk to me about that connection between, because everybody knows if you have a thyroid issue, don't eat wheat. And uh, I kind of want to dive into, if we could, like why not eat wheat? Like what is it about wheat that's so bad? Is it the gluten or is it the fact that we're not breaking down the gluten? Is that the issue? You know, what's the real fundamental issue? Because you can take the food out of the diet, which obviously makes sense um, for a while, but there's other foods that oftentimes are not going are not being as digested as well as they should. And sometimes these in, these food intolerances are, are canary in the, canola, in the coal mines that are really saying, hey, look over here. And we just say, take the food out. We think we solved the problem. We don't actually do that. So I'd love to maybe just dive into the leaky gut syndrome and go from there. I love your perspective uh, from, from the healing modalities that you, you're an expert in. And I love that perspective. I love your expertise in reversing food sensitivities as well. I'll share a little bit of what I've seen with clients and in my work and just from, from my body of experience. And typically people with Hashimoto's tend to have a lot of food sensitivities. I used to think that it was perhaps, you know, some of these foods were quote unquote bad or difficult or whatnot. And since that point, I've sort of been educated about that. It's not necessarily the foods that are problematic, but it's just that immune dysregulation that leads to people not being able to properly digest foods or metabolize foods. So in my first book, I wrote about some of the things that are helpful as far as symptom management go and as far as reducing Hashimoto's antibodies, potentially reducing the need for thyroid medications. Um, this would be getting off of reactive foods such as gluten, dairy, and soy are probably the three most reactive foods. What I've learned over the years and working with clients is that a lot of the times foods become reactive because of something else that might be going on in the body. So for the things that I found, for example, is when people have a, um, a lot of issues with grains and a ton of different food sensitivities, oftentimes this is driven by intestinal permeability or quote unquote leaky gut. Now, people will oftentimes talk about how, you know, this can be solved by taking L-glutamine or having some extra zinc or drinking some bone broth. In my experience and some of the testing and work that I've done, I've actually found that it can be triggered by um, protozoa. So a certain protozoa called blastocystis hominis, when I used to use one particular test to test people's stool, about 30% of people with Hashimoto's have this. And when we would treat this infection, people's food sensitivity symptoms would improve or lessen. Their thyroid antibodies would improve or lessen. A lot of their symptoms would go away. In some cases, their need for thyroid medications and their thyroid function would improve. Um, this has been documented by some scientists now, which I'm excited about um, doing some wonderful work in Europe. So these are some of the connections that I've seen. With some of the other food sensitivities, dairy being a big one, one of the things that I've come to notice is that people 
tend to be dairy sensitive when they are also deficient in carnitine. So for, um, you know, perhaps that might be something that helps to support the lymphatics as well. When we don't have enough carnitine, I feel like um, our lymph may not be working quite as well, but car taking carnitine can actually help with reversing dairy sensitivity in my experience. And then some of the, some of the other patterns I've seen is just, for example, with um, people with a lot of egg and sulfur reactions, a lot of times it's um, because their metabolism is impacted and they are um, oftentimes deficient in molybdenum. So they're not able to properly convert the sulfur into, um, into a usable form. And so they end up becoming sensitive to the food. So this has kind of been, you know, I, I love how we can have different backgrounds and perspectives and experience. My experience has been focused on looking at some of the different infections that people might have that may be driving them to be more sensitive, as well as like deficiencies in nutrients and cofactors. There are certain toxicities that may drive um, the autoimmune response as well, in, in my experience. So I, I don't know if you've seen anything like that in your work, but excited to to kind of nerd out and compare compare notes and yeah yeah no i think this is great i think we have a lot of common ground we just have to get to it and um <laughs> uh, i uh i remember i had a patient of mine uh a few years back and i had treated her for many years and she had thyroid issues and she had been on a medically supervised diet since she was like six years old chronic weight gain issues we finally got her able to digest you know, food, she was able to even eat wheat, her thyroid was stable. We got her where she wanted to be. She was living a great life. And she came in to my office one day and she said, my thyroid numbers are off the chart. I'm gaining weight like crazy. Like, I don't know what happened. And uh, she had just moved to Brazil from Boulder. And, um, and we were talking about that. And, uh, and I said, you know what, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. So I called a PhD researcher a uh, thyroid researcher, Ryan Drum from the Northwest. I don't know if you know him. He grows seaweed. Um, and uh, and I call him up and he just happened to pick up the phone and she was right there. And I said, Ryan, I said, I have this patient. She came, you know, out of the blue. Everything was great. Everything, her thyroid was exploding. Everything's going off. And he looked at me and he said, on the phone, he said, he said, has she bought a new car recently or any new furniture? And uh, and it was so crazy because we literally were just talking about her moving to Brazil, buying, getting a new apartment, buying all new furniture. She said I had to keep the windows open. I couldn't close the windows. And of course, she moved to Brazil and bought a new car. So it was all that toxic outgassing that just blasted her thyroid and the thyroid being obviously one of the most vulnerable organs, glands in our body for, you know, toxicity. And uh, and then we kind of proceeded to help kind of chelate her from that perspective. And I think that, you know, that was a great, great indicator to me of how maybe one of the reasons why um, thyroid issues are so prevalent. We dump 70 million tons of toxic chemicals in our atmosphere in the States every year, which filter down onto everything we drink and breathe and, and eat. So, you know, the thyroid is under the gun. I'd love to talk, maybe talk about the toxicity impact. You must, you, I know you know a lot about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, when you look at the studies of toxicity, I mean, I could I could pretty much look look up every chemical on PubMed and talk to you about which, 
how they're all connected to thyroid dysfunction. People living in proximity to various industrial plants have higher rates of thyroid toxicity. Um, fluoride is one of the more common thyroid toxins, mycotoxins from mold exposure. Um, I mean, pretty much we, we are exposed to endocrine disruptors through the makeup that we put on, through perfumes, personal care products, cleaning products. There's just a whole host of new chemicals that have been introduced into the modern world, and we're exposed to them on a daily basis. And if we don't have a way to eliminate from them from the body, then we can end up with hormonal imbalances. And this is what happens oftentimes in people that I've worked with with thyroid issues is they have some sort of a toxic backlog where I don't know what exact chemical it might be. You know, some people were saying like, oh, it's mercury that causes thyroid issues, or it's actually arsenic, or it's, you know, I every client I've had, I'll, I'll see something. And then I could go back and go down the rabbit hole of all these various toxins right. that are related, even, you know, rocket fuel, right? Uh, fireworks, like I, I could just go on and on to talk about the various toxins. But I feel like at the end of the day, we're looking at, well, why, why is this person accumulating more of these toxins than a person without thyroid disease, right? So we've got, of course, the genetic predisposition. We also have um, usually some kind of a trigger and that intestinal permeability piece. So there's always that intestinal permeability piece that we can work on. Um, the other things that I all often will work on with people is supporting their liver just in its ability to detoxify. There's a lot of different ways to do this. I know there's so many beautiful healing modalities out there that will utilize um, you know, fasting and various herbs. I personally, what I found a lot of success with is using sauna for two weeks, generally three to four times a week, right? So maybe a total of six to eight sessions getting people to really clean up their personal care routine. So if they are somebody that wears a lot of makeup, maybe try not wearing makeup and not using the lotions and potions for a couple of weeks, cleaning up their diet a bit so they're not getting a lot of this input for their immune system and their um, digestive system, utilizing smoothies, and then adding things like amino acids mm. to help support the detoxification process. So we tend to, um, typically people with thyroid issues, they're going to be at risk for accumulating toxins. One of the reasons is because their gut is impaired. And so a lot of times that the products that would normally be released from the gut might need to get shunted elsewhere. And a lot of times because they're hypothyroid, they're not sweating as much. And so that kind of eliminates that pathway. So I found essentially we want to support daily bowel movements, utilize something to help with the detoxification, such as amino acids. Um, oftentimes I'll recommend liver and gallbladder support and acetylcysteine along with that, with that sweating therapy. And that really does clear up a lot of symptoms in a couple of weeks that does improve like the T4 to T3 conversion. So people's active, people can activate their thyroid hormone a little bit better in their bodies. 
And it also um, tends to improve the autoimmune markers. I've had a lot of people with things like multiple chemical sensitivities where I, um, you know, I would say, try this vitamin or try this diet. And they were like, I tried the vitamins and it actually made me feel worse. Or I eliminated these foods and I didn't see any difference in how I felt. And so in that regard, I came up with the, with like a two week liver protocol, just to really focus on trying to move out some of that toxic backlog. And we try to really figure out, you know, my, my goal isn't to put people in like a padded room in a monastery with like on an all ice cube diet. Right. Um, my goal is to always get people to be more resilient in the modern world because I live in the modern world too. Right. And I want to make sure that they're able to travel, see loved ones and live a balanced life, not just be like really stuck on doing everything perfectly. And I have found that doing some sweating and supporting your liver can take you a really long way into enjoying your life a lot more. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. I, I call it bubble wrapping your diet and bubble wrapping your life and living in a bubble. And it's not, it's not good. It's not, it's not sustainable. Um, before we leave the idea of sauna, which I love the fact that you mentioned that, which kind is best, infrared, conventional? Have you done any research on that? I prefer using an infrared sauna, but in my experience, anything that will get a person sweating can be helpful. I know it's not necessarily economical for everybody to purchase a sauna. So, you know, the people that I talk to are sometimes people that are on disability are limited income. So my approach is if you can just work up a sweat, even if you can do it in an Epsom salt bath, right. go to a hot yoga class, maybe you can go outside for a walk. If you live somewhere warm, just getting that sweat working up is going to be a really great idea for you. And I, I mean, if you can afford an infrared sauna, that would be my preference. Nice. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, why is the thyroid so vulnerable? I mean, obviously the whole body's vulnerable to toxicity, but it seems like the thyroid seems to be the most vulnerable. Is it because of iodine and the iodine, you know, the potassium iodide maybe is depleted, which is a issue on our on our planet with a lot of folks and that's allowing other toxic halogens and other toxic chemicals to up, upload and attach to those receptors. Is that the reason? Do you have any idea like why the thyroid is so vulnerable? I think there's so many different theories on this and there's, you know, why do women have more thyroid disorders, right? Yeah. Why have thyroid disorders gone up in recent years? When we look at the rates of thyroid disorders 10, 20, 30 years ago, they weren't that high. Why do we have higher rates of Hashimoto's? There's a lot of questions like that. And a few different theories have come up with the thyroid gland being more susceptible to accumulating things, including toxins, right? Um, I know there was a study done in children who were exposed to Chernobyl. The children closer to Chernobyl had higher rates of thyroid cancer and higher rates of um, Hashimoto's as well compared to children who were of similar genetic background living further away from that explosion. Um, there are studies done in countries that started adding iodine to the salt supply where you know, not enough iodine can be problematic where people become hypothyroid. When we have excess iodine, perhaps in the, you know, in the picture of selenium deficiency or some other kind of 
thing going on, then people will end up having higher rates of Hashimoto's as well. So there are countries that have started adding iodine to their supply um, in an effort to re-iodinize the population. And then the rates of Hashimoto's have gone up two, three, four, five times in those studies. So looking at that over time, then there's looking at toxicity. So um, there, there's a lot of different theories and angles that people could go into as to why this happens. My, you know, one of the things that I've come up with from, you know, the, the countless women that I've worked with, and I primarily have worked with women, is thinking about like, why is it, why is it so many women that are affected, right? Is it because of estrogen, right? Is Does estrogen predispose us to having issues with our thyroid because of all the thyroid binding issues? Is it because of our, um, you know, propensity to use all of these personal care products that have endocrine disruptors? Is it something else? One of the things that I think also needs to get a little bit more attention to is that the thyroid plays a very adaptive role in our physiology. So it is something that senses our environment. And when we become exposed to, I guess, danger signals and stress signals, um, are we, you know, like in a famine or in a war, is it really beneficial for us to have like optimal thyroid function? What does thyroid function help us with? It helps us with metabolism, fertility, being out and about in the world. Um, there was an interesting presentation I went to a while back, maybe 10 plus years ago, talking about the Irish potato famine, that the women who were able to survive that actually had higher rates of thyroid disorders. So when you think about that, how thyroid disease can actually be protective from a adaptive physiology standpoint, this makes sense. If you're in a famine, right? It would be more beneficial for you to slow down your metabolism so you could survive on fewer calories, right? If you were in a war, it would probably be more beneficial for you to like hibernate and retreat back into your cave, which, which kind of what happens when you're severely hypothyroid, you just kind of sleep all day, right? And you, um, you store your body fat instead of using it up. And so, you know, I, I find it very interesting personally that women are primarily affected. And I feel like perhaps we're better in tune with our environment because we do take on the role of bringing new life into the world. The thyroid gland is tied in so intimately with fertility too. So I feel like it perhaps serves a role, not that, you know, we want to have thyroid disease, but in our, you know, thyroid gland does serve a role in protecting us from stressors, right? So um, back in the olden days, this was very, very beneficial when we were exposed to a famine or a war. These days, the same stressors, you know, if, if you're um, a modern day woman, this might be just working too much. This might be being on the treadmill, restricting your diet, not eating real food, and just being exposed to the, the pressures of being a modern day woman. So these are... Um, I feel like you've opened up a can of worms here asking me about the, the different philosophies and train of thought. I've, I've had a lot of them over the last, um, there, there's so many different possibilities of why that could be. I, I certainly think that stress is a really, really important reason why we end up having so many thyroid issues and it could be an adapt, adaptive process. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It's probably so many different factors. And I think women, you know, you know, we think of women in this culture, they do everything. I feel like they're superhuman in terms of what they are asked to do and what they can do and what they accomplish. I just have a lot of women in my life, an amazing wife and a bunch of good daughters and, and, uh, you know, they just, and, you know, patients, of course, who are just super moms and, you know, um, like yourself, you know, a massive career with kids and, and uh, it's a lot to ask, and it's a lot to push, not to mention just our culture alone is going 90 miles an hour. And uh, I think it's a challenge for, for everyone. Um, the, uh, the one study that I, that I um, read a while back and wrote about was um, that, um, you know, the brain's glymphatic system, which they recently discovered can dump like three pounds of plaque out of our head every year while we sleep and, and um, how, since they discovered that 10, 15 years ago, they've now kind of linked congestion of the brain's lymphatic system to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and even autoimmune concerns, therefore Hashimoto's. And um, and I wonder, you know, I wonder about that. I wonder about, um, you know, like hair dyes. I think it's, is it the lead acetate just in a lot of the hair dyes that actually goes right into the right, goes right through your skin is completely banned in most of the part, most of the world, except for here, of course. Um, do you think that has anything to do with it? And have you, um, and I, and it's just definitely, I, I, it's, it's not an area that is in medical practice at all. Understanding the brain's lymphatic system and how to treat it is something where Ayurveda have been treating the brain lymphatic system for thousands of years, right? Um, so it's something that's on my radar, but I wonder if um, you've seen any connections there between what we put on our head and therefore, because there's studies showing they did, they took methadone and they mixed it with sesame oil and put it on somebody's head. And they had the person, another person take methadone, they measured how quickly it got into the brain chemistry and they both came in about the same time, which was crazy, right? So that means that whatever you put on there, you know, is a good chance it's going to get in there and that, you know, can mess with something that's, you know, critically important, which is your, your brain's ability to detoxify. And uh, if the brain doesn't, can't, it's not getting good feedback. Where's the thyroid? I always think of it as a, as a feedback gland, right? It's kind of in the middle and it kind of connects the brain and the body, the mind and the body, right? And if it, if it can't communicate well, because this is congested and the master computer doesn't know how many fire trucks to send to the fire on main street, maybe it sends a hundred or none. And, uh, so I wonder if you have any, if you, if you can comment on that, just on that level of toxicity and, you know, just particularly around the head. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So, I mean, as a pharmacologist, I can tell you all about transdermal application of, of various products. So, you know, we've got a fat layer that can absorb things. We typically don't think about lotion and the contents of your lotion or the contents of your lipstick which can contain arsenic or lead or your I hair saw your post podcast your post on that the other day i came up and i saw oh that's cool i i never i mean i just love it's a great it was a great um you know i was like why is she putting on lipstick and i was like oh wow that's very cool yeah it, it's a true story i actually got arsenic toxicity from lipstick and so whenever we apply um products we don't typically think that they would get into our bloodstream. We think like, oh, I take a pill and it gets into my bloodstream. As a pharmacist, I've compounded drugs to be used topically, right? So there are vitamins, there are various drugs that have a tendency to get absorbed through the skin. 
um, typically drugs with lipophilic or, you know, drugs that like fat and fat absorbs fat. A lot of toxins are fat soluble, so they can actually absorb through our skin and get into our circulation. And the other thing that happens, unfortunately, is we have this effect in pharmacology called the first pass effect, where initially when you take a drug by the mouth, it passes through the liver and the liver kind of makes it a little bit less toxic and starts this metabolic process. That doesn't happen when you apply things topically. And so Mm -hmm. it is a really, really big, I guess, point that I want to educate about that if you're applying something on your body, your skin, your mucous membranes, you really need to look into what's in that product. I really like EWG. That has a lovely database for women that may use personal care products where you can search out your products and see what kind of rating does this product have? Does it have endocrine disrupting chemicals, right? I, um, I don't wear a lot of makeup on a day-to-day basis. If I'm doing a podcast or something, then I'll, then I'll put on a little bit of makeup and whatnot, but it is something that's very relevant and a really underappreciated reason why I think more women have autoimmune issues and thyroid issues. I know there was a study that I just was shocked to find many, many, many moons ago about lead and lipstick and that women who wore lipstick were more likely to have lupus. And there's just, I mean, you know, like correlation isn't necessarily causation, right? So I can't say for a fact that it's like the lipstick was causing it, but it's really interesting to note that that how there are these toxins present. My personal story was that I was, I got this new fun lip gloss and I was applying it all the time. And I started having a lot of symptoms, metallic taste in my mouth, arm tingling, um, really weird fatigue. And I did some testing and was found to have arsenic levels that were through the roof and um, just shocked by it. And I was like, are I thought my, my husband was maybe trying to poison me or, you know, like who's coming into my house? Who's giving me arsenic. Right. Um, and it ended up just doing a deep dive. I was like, is it in my rice? Is it in my water? And I came across this report that had actually done testing on a dozen different products. And this was 10 years. Over had like 20 times the amount of arsenic that, um, you know, was recommended. And so there, there are things that people I feel like aren't necessarily aware about that could really be sabotaging their health. That's um, really glad that, you know, you're asking about that because I feel like we can talk about food and that's such an important thing, but if you're not really thinking about your personal care products and you're not thinking about the stress that you're taking in through an emotional um, place as well, then, then that could be triggering you even if you're eating a perfect diet. I think it's amazing. I did not know that this, that the first pass effect and how uh, when you swallow something, you have the benefit of the liver. But what you're saying is when you put it on your skin, it bypasses that liver and it goes directly into your tissues and where, I mean, what is the, what is the pathway when it goes through the skin? Does it eventually get to the liver? It just doesn't get that first pass effect. Correct. But yeah, yeah. It, can be, it can be quite powerful for topical administration of certain certain chemical compounds that tend to be um, more fat soluble that can go through that skin layer and that fat layer and get absorbed. So 
it, it's very, um, you know, from studying pharmacokinetics and, and all of these fun classes, it's, it's quite eye-opening, right? And it doesn't surprise me when, um, you know, I used to compound creams with just a little bit of active ingredient for people to get the benefits of using them for with the drugs or even, you know, I used to make B12 topical creams. So you can use that on your skin and that will get absorbed into your body as well. And so even if there's small amounts of toxins or endocrine disruptors that are used as stabilizers that can really have a profound effect on your body, even though, you know, you're like, oh, it's just a little, little bit of cream. How, how toxic could that be, right? God. And then you think about that. And then you just think about the, the air that we're breathing and how toxic that is. I mean, I, I get a news feed with all the studies every day and uh, you know, I'm always looking for ancient wisdom, modern science connections. And, and I get at least two studies every day that are published on air pollution. Nobody knows about it. I mean, the World Health Organization said it's the number one health threat on the planet. Um, it's just, but it, nobody realizes how toxic our air is. And those are mucous membranes that are breathing in those toxins, right? So it's like a direct, you know, like, it, it, you know, that's, that's exactly the same effect, right? You, you're bypassing that liver. So you're getting these toxins directly into your bloodstream. I mean, and the crazy thing is I didn't really fully appreciate that. I thought it was like toxins of if you live close to a highway, right? right. To an airport. And yes that's very relevant, but also like the toxins that are present in our own homes from, I mean, if you use like air fresheners or those, those airwick candles, those can be sources of toxicity and then mold mycotoxins. I feel like this is another common reason why people who maybe are doing well, otherwise they can be really um, affected with their health if they don't have um, knowledge about that kind of toxic exposure. There's um, interesting data with um, like sick building syndrome that I think is just so fascinating with, with the buildings not being properly ventilated or perhaps having some source of toxins within them and how this can be such a significant source of chronic illness for people. And we don't even know it. What would you say, you know, when you think about all this, you know, if you were to make a checklist of the the, uh, the top three things that are going to put you at, at risk for a thyroid condition like that, um, maybe you could also answer that question if you don't mind. And then also maybe go right into your story and what happened to you and how you dug your way out of it, you know, and, and, fit and found a solution to this. That would be wonderful to hear. I think... There are a lot of predisposing factors to thyroid issues. So gen definitely like there's a genetic variance. The genes don't always have to be our destiny. Um, so I oftentimes educate people about like, what can you do either to prevent having a thyroid condition, right? Or once you have one, how do you reverse it? How do you get it into remission? Um, there are a few things. For example, selenium has been studied to help with preventing thyroid issues, and it could also help with getting Hashimoto's into remission. Having optimal vitamin D levels can be helpful anywhere from the, the ladies that I've personally seen in remission tend to be in about 60 to 80 levels of vitamin D. Um, there haven't been a lot of studies 
specifying exactly what the levels should be. That's been my personal observation. The observations have been that vitamin D tends to keep people at greater risk for thyroid issues. So making sure that's optimized is going to be very, very important. And How much then, selenium? Um, 200 micrograms? What do you suggest for that? Generally, I would recommend anywhere from like 80 micrograms to 400 micrograms. I used to recommend 200 micrograms for most people, but some people do find that they can accumulate that and they don't do well with that for long term. I see. Um, generally, people with sulfur issues and CBS gene mutations have been some of the people that I've noticed with that pattern. And so perhaps a lower dosage and combined with myo-inositol might be beneficial to them. Then the other thing is blood sugar issues. Oh. Like those are going to be relevant for a lot of people with thyroid issues. So focusing on getting plenty of protein and fat throughout the day, or, um, you know, some really to your tolerance, right? Like not everybody is going to need to be on the same exact diet when they have a thyroid issue, but we could probably all agree that you shouldn't be eating sugar all day, every day to send you into a blood sugar roller coaster. So those are probably the three biggest things that I would recommend focusing on as far as um, nutrients and nutrition that are, I guess, very tangible, right? You can't really change your genes. And um, it's kind of hard to not get certain infections because infections can, of course, trigger thyroid issues as well. Yeah, the only problem with that is that, you know, blood sugar issues are so prevalent, right? And I think, what is it, 50% of the population have or knocking on the door of prediabetes and 90% of those folks don't even know it. So that's that, you know, kind of like, you know, what, what are, do you have, can you, can you talk more about how to help people with blood sugar issues, pre-diabetic issues? Um, I really feel passionate about really knowing how things make you feel. So if somebody's open to it, I would recommend doing something like a continuous glucose monitor to see how you respond to foods. And yeah. really tailoring that to, to your results. And oftentimes I would recommend eating more protein to people. Generally, the people, the women that I see, they tend to not eat enough protein, right? And they, they tend to eat more carbs. So for a lot of people, the recommendation is, you know, don't eat as much sugar and eat more protein. Look at sources of good fat. So that's going to be a, a big recommendation diet-wise. And then there are things you can do, for example, taking walks after your meals, making sure you're getting good exercise throughout the day. That's going to be helpful and balancing, making sure your stomach acid is properly supported. So you're breaking down those proteins and fats. And um, I, you can utilize digestive enzymes for that. You could utilize something like apple cider vinegar. That can be very, very helpful, making sure you're eating some fiber with your meals, right? So this can be incredibly helpful as well, getting some green veggies. For supplements, what I like to use are chromium in some cases. And then I really like myo-inositol. That can be very helpful for um, Hashimoto's and PCOS. People with um, those two conditions can, um, those myo-inositol specifically in combination with selenium can get Hashimoto's, some cases into remission with, without really doing much else. So I find that to be very, um, one of, you know, one of my new favorites to, to incorporate into people's routine. 
if they are looking for more blood sugar balance. No, that's that's wonderful. I want to remind everybody that um, everything that she just said is in her book, um, um, the Hashimoto's Thyroiditis Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. I think it's a really great book. It's a New York Times bestseller. So clearly a, a really great book and one that everybody who's thinking about this should should read. Um, real quick on protein, the ultimate big debate right on the planet is um, should we be animal protein or vegetable protein? Is there any radar on that from the thyroid adrenal perspective? Does one type of source of protein do better than another? In my experience, I've worked with a lot of people who tend to do better with um, animal protein. So gluten is a protein, right? <laughs> and they tend not to do so well with that. About 80% of people to have issues with dairy and about 88% of people have issues with gluten when we're first, when I first start working with them. So oftentimes those are things that I'm recommending stopping. And sure. then there's other types of protein, soy that can be very reactive. And then, you know, the less reactive might be like egg protein or pea protein, and then some of the animal proteins. So I typically want to work with people who are, what am I trying to say? I, I typically recommend basically doing what works for that individual. And in my experience, a lot of them tend to have difficulty with the plant-based proteins until, you know, we do a little bit of work with their gut health and their nutrient status. And so a lot of times the animal proteins are where, where it's at. But at the same time, other people might have reasons why they may not be able to eat, to eat animal protein. Perhaps it's um, they're vegetarian for religious beliefs or personal beliefs, or um, perhaps they are sensitive to eat or cannot break it down because of enough stomach acid or protein. So I always do try to work with people in that regard too, where we're looking at like, can we do some plant-based proteins for you. And that, that of course becomes a bit more challenging. What's sort of interesting is that the plant-based proteins, a lot of them like the grains and things have uh, anti-nutrients on them. So they become way more challenging to digest. Things like soy, you said is a big trigger, you know, in China, um, soy was considered a toxin for, for centuries and centuries. And about 1500 years ago, they figured out a way to ferment it and they created natto. Um, and then it became, then it went, soy went into their materia medica and became a medicine. But in India and China, they don't eat soy. You know, that was the cow food. Uh, but in, but then they shipped it over here in 1959 and it became soil, it became everything. And here we have it, you know, as something that's very hard for us to break down uh, unless you get the really good fermented tofu. Like the, my Japanese friends, they don't buy tofu in the grocery store or Whole Foods. They go to the Japanese markets and they buy this super fermented tofu, which breaks down those anti-nutrients. So a lot of times I think, you know, uh, plant-based proteins are a lot harder to digest for folks, which is why, you know, everybody says, take the wheat, take the gluten, take the, the lectins, the, the phytic acids out of your diet, you're going to feel better. Well, those things aren't bad. They actually sometimes provide a hormetic effect to create a little bit of irritation to provide gut immunity. But when you take them out of the diet, we have studies that show that people's immune systems start to compromise. So there, there's there's something to be said about those foods being a part of the diet. And if you have to go to, if you if you feel better on those animal proteins, which don't have any anti-nutrients on them, they're actually more 
easy to deliver those those high quality nutrients into our system. So that may be why they're feeling so good. Because like you said, a lot of the issues with you know hypothyroid is poor stomach acid, which means you're not going to break down those proteins and you're and they're going to go undigested. They're going to go into your lymph and they're going to go systemic and your thyroid is vulnerable to that particular pathway. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find it, it it's, I, I'm a big proponent of using food as medicine and nutrition. The thing that I, I have a, I guess, concern with is some people talk about diet exclusion. And I think that can definitely be a part of the plan where they'll say, you can try the autoimmune paleo diet, but where I think people get in trouble is they'll use that for years onward and they keep losing more foods and losing more foods. And my perspective is let's put, you know, use a few different healing modalities and figure out like, why are you not digesting things? Do you need digestive enzymes? Do you have H. pylori, which is such a common trigger of Hashimoto's and food sensitivities? Can we clear that H. pylori infection? Do you have SIBO? Do you have, you know, other kinds of critters living inside of you that are preventing you from digesting your food properly? Are you deficient in nutrients, right? So I really, I feel like um, I love that there's so much education about nutrition and diet, but I also am a bit conflicted about it because personally I have, um, when I was just starting off, I was like, oh, you just eliminate foods, right? And like, and I was like, but wait, I'm eliminating more and more and more. And then until I got deeper into gut testing, where I realized, oh my gosh, I have like four different gut infections. Let me see what happens when I clear them. And, you know, now I could eat most foods. Don't get me wrong. If I eat way too many cakes, I will gain weight, right? But <laughs> at the same time, I'm not going to be bedridden for, you know, three to four days like I used to be because I had some grains. And so really a part of that was healing that digestive process and looking after my liver health as well and adrenal health and just kind of the, the big picture, the overall health versus being hung up on one specific evil food or one particular hormone, right? Yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, going on medication, you go off, go on one medication, then there's side effects to that one. Then you got to get another one. Next thing you're on, you're on 10 medications and the same with you know, foods, you go off one food and you feel better off of the dairy. And then next thing you know, you can't eat wheat. Next thing you know, you can't eat nightshades and then goitrogens and oxalates and then lectins. And then, then there's not a lot left, you know, and next thing you know, you really find yourself in nutritional deficiency. And that's the, that's why I think it's so cool. I love what you're saying. And so cool. I think it's so important for people to hear that, you know, we're speaking the same language. What they talked about thousands of years ago was fix the lining of your gut, create an environment for the good bacteria, because that's where the rubber meets the road. And if that's not right, don't, don't, don't just, you know, yeah, for sure, stay off the weed if you have Hashimoto's. Oh my God, of course. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you fix your digestive system. And that's such an important piece to, to the, to the puzzle. And of course, if you can't digest well, you can't detoxify well because they're the same pathways, right? The liver is involved in getting breaking down the good fats and getting rid of the bad fats. So if you don't have that coordinated digestive detoxifying effect, um, you're going to pay a price for that. And I think that that these food intolerances are, like I said, the canary in the coal mine. You need to listen to those and fix those along the way. And do exactly what you said. Don't get into exclusion eating where you're we're going down the road of enough. There's nothing left to eat. Um, let's kind of transition into 
the adrenals and what that would look like. Unless there's, unless there's more on the thyroid that we didn't touch that people need to hear to help prevent thyroid conditions. I think a lot of people think, okay, that's a big deal. A lot of people have thyroid. How do I prevent it? And when I, when I do, you know, what are some top things to treat it? Maybe you can go there first and we can dive into the adrenals for a bit. Sure. So one sec. Sure. So one of the things that I would recommend for if you currently have a thyroid condition, the, the kind of different pathways I focus on are going to be food sensitivities. So looking at gluten is going to be reactive in about 88% of people. Um, dairy and soy, getting off of those common reactive foods is a great place to start. Um, I will say I have found a way to get most of the foods back. Gluten, I haven't found a way back without um, for people with Hashimoto's, I know some of my clients, you know, from 10 years ago are saying they could eat gluten. Now I'm like, do I believe you? Um, so perhaps it might be a, a long-term thing. Well, the data is, I'm, I'm still kind of not, not a hundred percent sure about putting that ever back into the diet. The other foods I know can be, but definitely after a period of doing some work on your body and then looking at supporting your liver. This is going to be a key component just because of that toxic backlog and all the various toxins that can contribute to not just um, autoimmune illness, specifically thyroglobulin antibodies have been tied to either estrogen dominance or some kind of toxin backlog, but also to conversion of T4 to T3. So I find that to be very helpful and critical. And generally, I have like a two-week protocol for people to follow for this. And then supporting the health of the adrenals and really balancing that stress response is very much relevant. Gut health is very much relevant. And I think the other piece that people don't oftentimes talk about or maybe shy away from is, is addressing chronic infections. In some cases, people may have one or more chronic infections that are preventing them from healing. You know, in my case and a lot of my clients' cases that have been on these diets long-term, it's going to be some kind of a gut infection that is going to be perpetuating that, you know, that intestinal permeability so that no matter what you eat, you're going to become sensitive to it. No matter how many things you eliminate, it's just like whatever you're eating is going to be um, reactive for you because as it gets through that gut and that leaky gut, it can get into your circulation and lymphatic system and cause all kinds of issues, right? Becomes reactive to the immune system. So that, that is really my approach is focusing on those key areas of the body. And I have generally like a 90, 90 day plan for most that most people can go through to really nourish themselves back to health. Are you suggesting that, that when people go on those restrictive diets, that that somehow is the cause of those infections or what's that connection? Oh, no. It's usually that they have an underlying infection that right. leads them to have a food sensitivity. Like right. for example, um, the H. pylori infection, which is very well known for causing ulcers right. and cancer that actually has been tied to Hashimoto's as well. And right. so that is a big driver for Hashimoto's antibodies that can cause issues even with thyroid medication absorption that suppresses our stomach acid. And then we become sensitive to whatever foods that we eat. Could right. cause have reactive hypoglycemia and all of those blood sugar thing, blood sugar issues, and so um, and it's driven by stress too. So stress makes it stronger. So there's it's all connected, right? But right. if we have that infection, 
we don't have stomach acid. We end up with SIBO because we don't have that protective stomach acid. And then right. we end up with some kind of a dysbiosis or we can also get another kind of infection like a parasite because we don't have that stomach acid to destroy it coming in from our foods. Then right. we're going to develop food sensitivities. That's interesting. I, I get it now. What you're seeing is the part that I missed was people go on these restrictive diets because they don't feel good eating regular food. And the reason why they aren't feeling good with regular food is because they have either, you know, SIBO or, you know, H. pylori or some type of digestive disturbance, which is allowing the food that we eat, the air we breathe that is loaded with bacteria to infiltrate in ways that it wouldn't if you were digesting well. Once again, the food is the canary in the coal mine. Don't, don't ignore that and just say, I can take it away because you haven't really fixed the problem, right? Exactly. And I'm not suggesting that everybody can do fine on a McDonald's diet if they just treat it. No, no. <laughs> we're, not, we're not. Yeah. I don't think our listeners are on the, in that. They're very sophisticated and really into their health. So that, that sort of goes without saying. And I did, I don't know if you know, I wrote a book called Eat Wheat and it was, you know, but again, it wasn't like everybody should eat wheat. It's just that again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indicator of something wrong. Fix the thing that's wrong. Don't just think that blame blame, blame, you know? Oh, um, absolutely. I, my, my perspective, you know, living in Los Angeles and Austin has widened a bit. Cause I would be like, oh yeah, everybody knows about food sensitivities. And here they have, they have gluten everywhere. They have like, even schools have gluten for the kids. Right. I was like, what? I'm not in Boulder anymore. So <laughs> you get a ticket. If you get caught with gluten too many times in Boulder, you get a ticket. I find you. I miss, Yeah. But um, no, I think this is great. This is a great discussion. Again, I think in 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 um, in Isabella's book, you can get those protocols and how to do it. She's, I think it's a brilliant what she, what you've done. Let's talk about the adrenals and maybe talk about stress and the adrenals and that impact of stress and how that works. And you know, if you could kind of dive into that, your second book or your most recent book for us. Yes, my adrenal book was really born out of, um, I guess my evolution has been focused on not living like a perfect life in a monastery and like living and becoming more resilient in the real world. Like to your point, not eliminating every food, right? Really figuring out what's at the root of that. Is it your digestion, right? Um, with the adrenal book, it was focused on how do we thrive despite the world kind of being a stressful place and what i used to recommend um i'm sorry what were you saying i said that's great what i used to recommend um when i was younger and you know maybe maybe not as wise is what some of the more traditional integrative medicine protocols for adrenals so if you have adrenal dysfunction i would say you need a quick coffee, you need to decommit everything, and you need to sleep for 12 hours a night for 30 days. And then I would recommend hormones as well. And then I became a mom and I was like, I was like, wait, I'm pretty sure my adrenals are tanked. They're not very happy right now because I was taking care of an infant um, that was waking up all throughout the night. And then I was like, wait a minute, I can't quit the coffee. Like I just started drinking it. It's helping me get through the day. I can't decommit all of my responsibilities. Hello, I have a newborn. Like I have, like I'm a mom. And then I was like, I can't sleep for 12 hours a night for the next 30 days. Like, again, I have a newborn, right? Um, 
And I also wasn't willing to take hormones because I was nursing and I was like, I don't want to give my baby like chin hair and, you know, back hair. I don't know what these hormones are going to do. So I really had to come up with another, I guess, way to build resilience and strength and some of that um, energy, right? Which didn't come from lots of sleep and didn't come from supplements, right? And hormones. So that was how I started on my path of the adrenal transformation book. I was able to utilize essentially um, circadian rhythm work, mitochondrial support, and then some of the more nutrient replenishing methods and personal transformation methods to bring myself into balance with um, and get myself more into a thriving state out of that adrenal dysfunction rather quickly. And then I piloted it on a group of my community. Um, So it's been done with like thousands of women now that have been like struggling with adrenal issues and tried all these supplements and tried all these things. And they do get better in like four weeks. So I really was like, I was, you know, I had written three books and then I was just really enjoying being a mom and just my work being out in the world. And I was like, okay, my son is in preschool now. I feel like I need to let people know about adrenals and that there's maybe a more simple, less drastic path to healing that doesn't, you know, that doesn't require you to like be so perfect and quit all the things, right? So I'm curious what circadian um, adjustments that you made. Really just a lot of light therapy work. So one of the, one of the things that I feel like it it seems so common knowledge to me now, but not a lot of people know is sleeping in a blacked out room, um, making sure that I got bright lights in my eyes first thing in the morning for at least 30 minutes. So I would step outside as soon as I woke up and see the lights that really set my cortisol levels up for the day to allow myself to get the message that it was time to wake up. I would delay caffeine intake by 30 minutes to an hour to again, allow my cortisol to build up naturally. And then through spending a lot of time in nature throughout the day to really inform my body that it was daytime and it was time to produce cortisol. So doing some things, eating outside whenever possible. And then really after, after it became dark, trying to tune out a lot of the sources of blue light. So wearing blue blockers is an option, putting your phone or your computer on nighttime mode, um, living in candlelight or turning all of your lights red at your house. Those are additional options on how that can be done. Really like covering up every source of blue light in the bedroom so that you can really have that restorative sleep. That was, um, that's, that's been a really big game changer for a lot of people. And it's, it's something so, I guess I want to say so pedestrian that people like don't believe it's going to work. And then they try it and they're like, oh my gosh, I have more energy in the morning. Where did this come from? No, it's so, so true. You know, the, the nature deficiency disorder that we all have, you know, can be boiled down to a lack of infrared light. You know, one study showed that uh, the average Americans, 90% of the time they're indoors and the new LED lights don't have any uh, any infrared. They don't heat up. They don't warm us. They don't. And that infrared light that we get 
you know, 70% of those of the solar energy we see outside, the light that we have is infrared. And we have an infrared light deficiency. And that's what penetrates through the skin and activates the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme in your skin to activate uh, mitochondrial energy production. So that's the key, you know, probably maybe like you said, you know, what happened 30, 40 years ago, are we indoors more? Is that part of the, the equation for all these concerns? It surely might be. Surely it might be something uh, to look at, right? I oh. wonder about, oh, go ahead, sorry. I said, absolutely. I feel like nature is one of the best healers and just taking that time to spend time in nature can be a really big game changer for so many health conditions. And pe people don't believe it until they try it and they're like, oh my gosh, you were right. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're so right on you're 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 so right on and you're really touching on with your books, you know, um nerves that in, in conditions that are just so chronic and so um devastating for people. You know, people have these issues, you know, whether it be food intolerances or Hashimoto's or adrenal fatigue and exhaustion. I mean, these are these are things that just take people's lives away. And I'm so grateful for your work and, and I'm so grateful for um, you coming on and sharing this with you. And I wanna encourage everyone to get these books, whether it be the Adrenal book, uh, Adrenal Transformation Protocol, or the Hashimoto's Thyroiditis book, uh, addressing the root cause. Uh, she's an amazing writer, uh, you know, I, I love your work and thanks so much for being here. Can you let, do you have a website where people can send to get more information about your work and stay up, up with you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having uh, me on and thank you for your work in the world. I'm so excited. I have um, I have your book and I'm so excited about it too. So um, you, I'd be happy to, I'd love to interview you sometime. I am over on thyroidpharmacist.com is my website and my Instagram is Isabella Wentz PharmD. I'm also on Facebook at thyroidpharmacist Dr. Isabella Wentz. Cool. Yeah, she does really great social posts. You really got to check it out. Isabella, thank you again so much. Hopefully we'll do this again. Um, keep up the great work and thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.